0: This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety Focus. Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts Aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Hello, Case for Safety podcast listeners. Hope everyone out there is enjoying a nice holiday season. As we get ready to wrap up 2021, we wanted to do something special this week and bring you an encore presentation of not one, but two of our most popular episodes and a couple of my personal favorites in what we're calling a fall protection double feature. These conversations took place back in 2019 with members of the ANSI ASSP Z359 Committee on Fall Protection and Fall Restraint. Uh, these episodes offer expert insights into two very important aspects of fall protection and fall restraint, uh, self-retracting devices and anchorage connectors. The first episode features Dan Hen of the Z359.14 subcommittee on safety requirements for self-retracting devices for personal fall arrest and rescue systems. I do want to note that the ANSI ASSP Z359.14 standard discussed in this episode has been updated since this episode first aired, with a revised version being published earlier this year. The second is with Greg Small of the Z359.18 Subcommittee on Safety Requirements for Anchorage Connectors for Active Fall Protection Systems. Uh, I just want to take a moment. We want to thank everyone for listening this year, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content in the year to come. And uh, we'd like to wish everyone a very happy, healthy, and safe 2022. And with that, here is our fall protection double feature. Take care. Many pieces of equipment play a part in developing a safe and effective fall protection system. One such piece of equipment is the self-retracting device, or SRD, used in personal fall arrest or rescue systems for workers at height. The key with SRDs, as with all fall protection equipment, is knowing that it has undergone the proper testing, as well as how to operate it properly so that it can serve its intended purpose. The NCASSP Z359.14 standard establishes requirements for self-retracting devices for personal fall arrest and rescue systems. Here to discuss SRD safety and the Z359.14 standard with me is Dan Henn. Dan is Vice President of Operations at Reliance Fall Protection, Vice Chair of the Z359 Committee, and Chair of the Z359.14 Subcommittee on Safety Requirements for self retracting Devices for Personal Fall Arrest and Rescue Systems. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here this morning, thank you. I touched a little bit on self-retracting devices or SRDs during the intro, but for our listeners who may not be familiar with these tools or may be just getting into fall protection, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what self-retracting devices and self-retracting lanyards are and the role they play in fall protection.
1: Well, I think it's important to talk about what they are, but also what they've become. And Mm -hmm. if you look at the self-retracting device or the classic self-retracting lifeline, these were traditionally uh, cable inertial locking reels that were mounted on overhead anchorages. To allow a cone of access on a blocking working surface but over the last 10 to 15 years they've evolved into a series of different types of devices many of which have been miniaturized and uh worn in lieu of energy absorbing lanyards and that's created some new challenges for the market okay so
0: uh getting into the standard itself i wonder if we could provide our listeners kind of a broad overview of z359.14 and more specifically how safety professionals and workers can use the standard to help ensure everyone stays safe when working at height.
1: Well, if we look at the current standard that is uh, currently in circulation, uh, it hasn't evolved to the point where it is anticipated the, the new manner of use of these devices. And if we look at the uh, overhead cable reels, those are pretty well qualified, and, and then those requirements are pretty straightforward. But if we look at the way that the miniature devices or the personal devices are being utilized, uh, we haven't anticipated a lot of the end user behaviors and incorporated new requirements into the standard as of yet. Although we presently have a new version of the standard in circulation, which has uh, been validated successfully, so we're actually uh, disposing of comments
0: presently. With that groundwork, let's get into the the details of the standard, which is divided into four main sections, those being requirements, qualification testing, marking and instructions, and user inspection, maintenance, and storage. So starting from the general requirements, what should purchasers, safety professionals, and users be looking for in an SRD?
1: Well, in the new standard, we've written additional requirements in requiring higher factors of safety. I think one of the things that people fail to realize is because of the limitations of the construction of these devices in their historical context, they're the only product or finished product in the marketplace that do not uh, provide a 2 to 1 safety factor. The minimum strength requirement in the current and previous standards has been only 3,000 pounds, which when compared to the 1800 pound maximum resting force doesn't get us that 2 to 1 factor of safety which is a very basic expectation in fall protection. Now in the, in the use of these devices with an overhead anchorage that wasn't really a tremendous concern because we weren't really inputting a great deal of force. But once we've miniaturized these devices and we've allowed the end user to select different anchorage elevations, uh, we've created some new problems here. So a key feature of this standard is to increase the strength of these devices, whether through the materials we're using or through the construction methods. In addition to that, uh, the performance requirements we've gone through and we've eliminated testing procedures that didn't teach us anything about the performance or capability of these devices, and we've introduced new testing procedures to evaluate known end-user behavior that has evolved over the last 10 to 15 years. So we make sure that we have covered our bases with that. And in terms of marking instructions, our objectives there are to make sure that we identify which devices are appropriate for which applications so the end-users can make good decisions about the application of product.
0: Moving into testing, I wanted to discuss the the type of testing required in Z359.14 and how to know that the SRDs, SRLs that you're purchasing or using have undergone the proper testing to ensure they'll provide that proper level of protection out there in the field.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to tell you this, that the the ANSI standards are comprehensive and certainly uh, go beyond what the federal regulations require in terms of testing. If we look at subpart M, for example, in Appendix C, you know, those those, uh, testing guidelines are non-mandatory, right? So, as a result, all that testing is essentially optional. If we look at the context of the ANSI standards, they go way beyond the non-mandatory requirements of the uh, uh, subpart M requirements, but they're still voluntary. So, my, my guidance to end users is, if you have an application wherein you're concerned about the performance of your product, then you need to talk to your manufacturer of choice and look for specific test data. Because if we look, for example, at the leading edge test requirements in the current standard, they address conditions that generally exist in steel erection environments, but not necessarily in road and bridge environments or other aggressive construction environments where other hazards may exist. So while the ANSI standards are comprehensive, they're not all inclusive and there are are other hazards that need to be mitigated. So my, my message is that additional testing is required above and beyond in order to vet out those additional hazards and conditions that exist in the workplace. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. With, uh, with regard to testing, something we've uh, discussed in a previous podcast with regard to Z359.14 is that the test requirements in the standard apply only to testing leading-edge devices over a steel edge. Drop tests on uh, abrasive surfaces such as concrete or stone are not included in the current version of the standard. There was a, actually a bulletin published last year addressing this issue, so I wonder if you could speak a little to that, the rationale behind it, and what those who purchase and use leading-edge devices need to know about testing.
1: Well, you know, uh to be fair, I have to say that you know, there are so many variables that exist out there in the individual workspaces that it's very difficult to account for all those and create reasonable analogs that will allow us to evaluate those conditions. So that's an ongoing effort that we're actively working on. And uh, once we publish this next version of the standard, our primary objective is going to be to develop additional analogs for leading edge conditions to ensure that we've vetted out as many of those variables as possible. But the simple fact of the matter is this, that if we want to ensure end user safety, the first step we have to take is to elevate our anchorage, right? The higher the anchorage is, the better off we are in all circumstances. And every measurable metric improves under those circumstances. And while it may be difficult to introduce elevated anchorage in many conditions, or in many circumstances, the fact of the matter is that solutions exist whether it's freestanding horizontal lifeline systems, boom lifts, uh, passive systems, alternative measures. Uh, I'll point back to the hierarchy of controls in in Z359.2. You know, we have a lot of options available to us. It's just, are we willing to take the time to do the work or are we looking for the easy way out? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Uh, One topic that particularly caught my attention when taking a look at the requirements and testing sections of the standard is the discussion of SRLs with integral rescue capability. This is something the standard dedicates sections to in both the requirements and the qualification testing. And I wonder if you could speak a little to what integral rescue capability is in some situations where SRLs with that capability are
1: needed. Well, let me first very carefully and slowly state that self-retracting devices with integral rescue capability is a mouthful. (laughs) <laughs> uh, what it speaks to mostly, and, and I'd say classically, would be your, uh, your classic confined space device, which includes okay. an integral rescue winch. And those, those devices are intended to retrieve somebody who succumbs to the environment in a confined space and pull them out. But with uh, other innovations taking place in the marketplace, there are also devices available that have uh, controlled descent mechanisms that can be initiated or utilized in the event that somebody falls uh, and they can be lowered to a safe location. The simple fact of the matter is that this class of device isn't fully realized yet, and I expect that there will be a lot of innovations coming down the line here in the coming years, because rescue is one of those things that we talk about a lot, and even in the regulation we discussed the, the need for a site-specific rescue plan. But more often than not, the site-specific rescue plan is somebody with a cell phone calling 911. <laughs> and that's not good enough right Uh, we have a long way to go but i will say that the uh, the committee has done a lot of work on developing the z459.1 standard for rope access and what that's going to do is going to give us a lot of new tools within this assortment of goods that we're familiar Mm -hmm. with in our community that can be utilized for rescue purposes and so legitimizing the rope access techniques uh equipment and methodology into the fall protection standard gives us a basically a new quiver of arrows to work with to, to develop better rescue scenarios. So I'm, really, I'm very excited about that. So
0: the next section in the standard covers markings and instructions for SRDs and I wanted to discuss uh, what information these markings and instructions provide the end user to ensure that they have undergone proper testing prior to use and use properly out in the field and using the markings on a particular device to know which device is appropriate for different working conditions.
1: Well, you're going to have to ask me this question again here in a few minutes because I'm going to totally derail the conversation <laughs> at this point. And what I want to say is this, that prevailingly, when I when I speak to end user groups or do, conduct training, whatever the case might be, I always ask the question, what do you all do with the instructions? and 99 times out of 100, they make a waving motion over their shoulder <laughs> as if to say, We throw them away and we don't care about them. And I refer to this as the IKEA principle. And I think a lot of us have had the experience of buying a bookcase or something at IKEA and trying to put it together. And we f- figure we'll have it licked in a half an hour. And an hour and a half later, we're digging the instructions out of the trash and trying to figure out what went wrong. And where fall protection is concerned, I see that happen again and again and again. These instructions aren't being disseminated to the people who need to have mm-hmm. them in order to. Uh, successfully implement these systems. So as a result, if we look at the marking side of things, you know we have a real estate problem. If we look at the size and space that we have to put uh, informational markings on a product, we're very limited. So we can only really kind of get the greatest hits on there. And if people aren't paying attention to that, then we're really in in deep trouble. So our effort in the new 0.14 standard is to try and create some new vehicles for communicating uh, these issues. So there are specific... Uh, formats have been created, particularly for products in the F2 class, which are used over uh, a potential structural edge contact, which communicate the minimum clearance requirements. So at the most basic level, the end user at the point of attachment has a document available to him that says, you need to have this much space beneath you or you're in trouble. Okay. So we're looking for, for ways to communicate this information succinctly and, and locally in an effort to make sure that the end users, the individual worker at risk has the information he needs to understand whether or not he's implementing his system safely.
0: Now that we've worked our way through the standards, we arrive at inspection, maintenance, and storage. Now, I know these are all critical to the continued safe use of fall protection equipment. So when users are inspecting an SRL, SRD prior to a shift, what kind of things should they be looking for to ensure that the equipment is safe to use, and what do they need to do to ensure that it stays in good working order over a long period of time?
1: Well, you know, this is one of those things, and I know that we sometimes in the safety business talk about how uncommon common sense is but it really is a common sense issue we deal with srl specifically or self attracting devices in general locking function is the number one thing we're looking for and if the device fails to lock then we have a real serious problem and that's it's a pretty common occurrence particularly in aggressive environments so you know my first guide is always look for that locking behavior of the device if we don't have that then we've got nothing you know, from there on out, we're looking at the condition of the device, and quite frankly, you know, we're looking at very simple things such as, you know, denting, cracking, breaking, any deformation of any component. We're looking at corrosion or any invasive contamination. You know, if it's a filthy, awful mess, then we probably shouldn't be using it. And if we if we kind of you know evaluated uh, our SRLs on the same level that we would evaluate our clothing on date night, we'd probably be in a lot better shape. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, Any anything else you'd like to add about Z three fifty nine point fourteen or S R D safety?
1: You know, I'm just going to say this: that you know, fall protection is a uh, area of PPE or safety in general that's a little bit enigmatic, and uh, you know, we simply don't know what we don't know. And I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm still learning things about it. So, you know, the uh, the key objective is we need to talk and communicate and ask questions and uh, seek new information. And the simple fact of the matter is that you know, over the last ten years. The fall protection market has grown exponentially and at the same time we've uh, had a 27% increase in fall fatalities. And uh, you know, in 2017, uh, beyond the 887 fall fatalities, we had 227 injuries resulting in days away from work with a median value of 9 days. 15,000 of those were head injuries and one in three resulted in brain injury. And there are a lot of things we can do to improve the safety of workers at height. And one thing that I'll mention here that's not directly related to fall protection is is simply this. Type 2 hard hats with a four-point chin strap would greatly reduce the number of head injuries we're seeing every year. So, you know, what we need to do is focus on those things that we can visualize and see and and take steps to improve. And it's going to take time. We have some cultural issues to overcome here. But uh, these things are not unachievable. And, uh, you know, the the end goal should be to, you know, move toward progress rather than perfection.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much again for coming on, Dan. Uh, Fall protection, I know, is a very important topic to a lot of safety professionals and workers out there, so I hope our conversation provided some insight into how they can use SRDs to develop and improve their fall protection systems, so thank you again. Thank you, Scott. And now, part two of our fall protection double feature with guest Greg Small of the Z359.18 Subcommittee on Safety Requirements for Anchorage Connectors for Active Fall Protection Systems. Staying safe while working at height involves a number of factors. One of the most important of these is being properly anchored so that falls can be arrested and if a fall does occur, the worker can avoid serious injury. The ANSI ASSP Z359.18 standard establishes safety requirements for anchorage connectors for active fall protection systems. Here to discuss fall protection anchorage and the Z359.18 standard with me is Greg Small. Greg is president of Elevated Insight and Engineering Limited. He is also the chair of the Z359.18 subcommittee on safety requirements for anchorage connectors for active fall protection systems. Greg, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Well, it's my pleasure.
0: Now I touched a little bit on anchorage at the top and the important part it plays in creating a safer work environment, but I thought we could start off by getting into a little more detail on that and talking about why, why proper anchorage is so important when working at height and what are some of the hazards a worker could encounter if they're not properly anchored.
2: Well, the, the most obvious that everybody gets is that the anchor has to be strong enough. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have any anchors fail when you fall. But the the aspect that is often neglected is where the anchors are located. You want to make sure they're as high as possible so that uh, they're going to stop you in a little shorter distance. Uh, You want to make sure that you're not subjecting yourself to a swing fall, which Mm -hmm. means that you could swing into something which can cause very serious injuries. those Those are the primary things, but users have to make sure they don't neglect looking at is the anchor located properly.
0: Okay. To that point, what are some steps that workers can, can take, you know, kind of a, a checklist, if you will, to, to ensure that they are anchored properly as they start their work at height?
2: Well, I mean, OSHA talks about certified anchors and non-certified anchors. Certified anchors are anchors where a qualified person, might be a professional engineer, has certified that the anchor has the minimum required strength, there are also there is the ability for a competent person to select a bomb-proof anchor, i.e., you know, sort of rules of thumb. Does the anchor look strong enough to that you could support your pickup truck, for example? Is is the way workers are sometimes trained, and so you want to have something that's substantial uh, because the forces can be quite large when somebody sure. Absolutely. impacts the anchor. Mm-hmm. With that
0: in mind, there are different types of anchorage connectors, and those are identified within the C350 9.18 standard. So I wonder if we could speak a little to those, the differences between them, and how to know which type of connector you need for different working situations.
2: Well, the, the standard breaks the, the, the anchor family into three different types. We have type A, which is, you know, a basic anchor for arrest. It Typically, the, the anchorage connector itself has to have a strength of 5,000 pounds, uh, and it's important for users to understand that the 5,000 pound marking on that anchorage connector doesn't confirm that they have a 5,000 pound anchor, because what it gets mounted to is decided by somebody else. So the anchor That's may a have a point. strength of 5,000 pounds, but and it may say on it 5,000 pounds, but uh, it's, it's not... Um, You've got to look at what is it anchored to and how is it anchored. Okay. Okay, we have type T which is very similar, but these are anchors that are intended for tie back usage. And there are some slightly different requirements for them. Um, window washers often tie their ropes to the anchors, so we have to make sure that the that the anchorage connector has, you know, appropriate diameters and so forth so that you're not gonna weaken the rope. Um uh, window washer style of anchors, uh, tie-back anchors, are almost universally on the outsides of buildings, so we've got a, they, they have more stringent corrosion requirements and so forth. Uh, the third type in the standard are the deformables and the deformables are anchorage connectors that are allowed or even designed specifically to deform and perhaps absorb energy in their deformation which can reduce the the size of the impact that the worker and the anchor sees if it deforms and absorbs some of the energy and so you can get away with a lower strength and you don't always have strong structures that might anchor five thousand pounds but with some of the deformable anchorage connectors that are covered in the standard and and you'll have to read specifically what those anchorage connectors are intended to do uh, you can fasten them to things that don't have the desirable strength of five thousand pounds but are perfectly safe if you make the right selection.
0: Okay now I know there are many components involved in Anchorage and that much of this will depend on the particular working environment but in general terms what should manufacturers, purchasers, contractors, and users be looking for in terms of design and performance for Anchorage and Anchorage Connectors?
2: Uh, Manufacturers do want to provide good performance i.e. safe products at a reasonable and competitive cost, the purchasers themselves really should be looking for the same thing. Um, Cost is the easiest comparison between products, but performance is where it gets a little more difficult. You, You mustn't assume that because two anchorage connectors pass the same standard that they're going to perform in the same fashion. Type D anchorage connectors which are allowed to deform, they will reduce the forces, that's maybe something to understand, uh, but th- because they deform, they allow you to fall a little bit further. Mm. If a type D anchor is used to anchor a horizontal lifeline, even a small deformation of the anchorage connector could result in a much greater sag of the horizontal lifeline and a much, uh, you're going to fall further, you're going to need more clearance as a result. Uh, so it, it's important for users to dig a little bit into what the anchorage connectors are designed to do, so that they don't, so that they don't mistakenly assume that there's no difference between them because they pass the same standard. Right,
0: that's a very good point. Now, in in terms of testing, and there's a lot of qualification testing that goes on with all different types of fault protection equipment. So what specific types of testing does Anchorage Equipment Anchorage Connectors undergo? And what t- kinds of tests should organizations be asking for to ensure that the connectors, the equipment they're using, will work effectively in real-world use?
2: As the standard was being developed, we have, we've always required some standardized tests, you know, a known weight dropped a known distance, using a, a very special type of testing lanyard. But because the different types do perform differently, um, the, the, the required strength of a type D actually depends on what force is measured in that standardized test. So again, um, we allow the manufacturers to design these devices To manage the energy of the fall in different ways and as a result we have an equal level of safety even though one anchorage connector is rated for a lower force than another but it manages the energies properly. Now one of the last minute changes we made to the standard was to direct the manufacturers to test the substrate that these devices are installed on And, and you know it might sound obvious that you know of course you would want to test the anchorage connector installed the way the manufacturer wants it to be but that creates a lot of problems in terms of uniformity of testing mm-hmm. because different manufacturers allow their anchorage connectors to be mounted on plywood on steel on decking and so forth and so it became very difficult to come up with a uniform test that would prove sure. an anchorage connector on all of the things you could install it onto so at the last minute as the standard was about to go out we modified the standard making the manufacturer responsible for figuring out how to test his anchorage connector the way he allows it to be used so what this is going to mean is that users really need to to understand what the manufacturer has intended the anchorage connector to be used for and again as I've, as I've said earlier in this interview you can't just assume because Product A and product B pass the same standard, that they are interchangeable. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And and to your point, the intended use, not the, you know, it could potentially do this. So no, what was it intended to be used for when the yes. manufacturer brought it to market? Th- th-
2: th- th- they're not magic. You can't right. take an anchorage connector <laughs> and fasten it to drywall and just because right. it's rated for 5,000 pounds <laughs> think it's going to hold 5,000 pounds. That's a great example.
0: Moving into the marking and instructions, I know marking and instructions play a, a huge part in ensuring that fall protection equipment is used effectively. What marking should users be looking for in anchorage connectors and what, what do workers need to know about the instructions for use before utilizing an anchorage connector out there in the field?
2: There's, anchorage connectors have fewer markings than a lot of the other products, mm-hmm. um, in part because Some of them are very small and to require all of them to have a lot of markings on them becomes impossible um, unless you attach a big permanently attached label which often won't survive very long in the field or etch with very very small writing that nobody can read anyway. So anchorage connectors have to state the standard number that they're meeting, what type they are, the allowable directions of loading, and the uh, you know the breaking strength of the anchorage connector. Uh, again, cautioning people to understand that that's the anchorage connector, not what it's mounted to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a working load on some anchorage connectors—that's important, uh, particularly the the type D deformables, because an anchorage connector may not be suitable for suspension as well as fall arrest. You know fall, fall arrest anchors. You know. They're allowed to deform, and after you've had a fall, you have to replace Mm -hmm. a deformable anchor. Um, A type A or a type T probably doesn't need to be replaced after a fall. And then, of course, one of the more interesting things is multiple loops on an anchorage connector must be marked as to which ones are intended for use in falls and which ones are simply a handle. So on on things like a tripod, you may have a handle on it that to an experienced person obviously isn't intended to be a point that you connect to, but an inexperienced person might mistakenly right. connect to a carrying handle, mm-hmm. which isn't intended as a connection point.
0: Okay, so now uh, finally we come to Section 6 of the standard, which covers inspection, use, and storage. Uh, you touched on this a little bit when you talking about if an anchorage connector becomes deformed, that type of thing, but what do users need to be looking for to ensure that anchorage equipment is safe to use? What can they do to keep it in good working order, and how can they know when it's time to retire a piece of equipment that's no longer effective?
2: Okay, well, you know, you, you have to read the manufacturer's instructions, because this is really totally up to the manufacturer. Okay. It's not really um, defined by the standard, although there's some performance requirements. Um, for the most part, in terms of you know, how much corrosion is too much, um, what to inspect for in terms of welds and so forth, how much wear is acceptable, that really is up to the manufacturer. Okay. So, so you've got to read that and understand that. In terms of keeping the anchorage connectors in good working order, don't abuse them. And, <laughs> Always and, good advice. And you know, in the field, I see people tying things other than fall protection to anchors mm-hmm. out of convenience because they need an anchor for something else. Um, you never want to overload an anchor, of course. That that pretty much covers mm-hmm.
0: it. Just av- avoiding those kind of misuses that you alluded to earlier. Just yeah. fo- focus on the intended use, and the, that'll help the you know the piece of equipment last a whole lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, great. Uh, any anything else you'd like to add about uh, the Z 33918 standard or anchored safety?
2: Mainly that it's important that users read the literature and use them properly. Although the concept of what they do appears to be simple, uh, they are the most complicated part of the fall arrest system. You know, uh, at the other end, you know, harnesses, for example. Most users are going to have two arms, a legs, mm-hmm. you know. A torso, so the harness conceptually is pretty straightforward. Even you know, even though it has some variations, uh, the lanyards connect a harness to something else. The self-retracting lifelines, again, are connecting fairly well understood things to under well understood things. But anchorage connectors is where the system interfaces with the real world, mm-hmm. and so as a result, you have hundreds if not thousands of different ways of connecting. I mean you have anchors that could screw into the soil. You have anchors that wrap around trees. You have anchors that screw down on a metal decking. So they are the most complicated and potentially subject to the most abuse if Mm -hmm. you take one that's intended for one purpose and use it for a purpose that it's not intended to be used for.
0: Yeah, I know in, in conversations I've had with folks about fall protection that, to your point, it's not as intuitive as, as many other kinds of equipment workers may come across. And going back to what we mentioned earlier, it's critical to understand what the manufacturer's intended use for the equipment was and sticking to that as you're working at height, whatever environment that might be. That's correct. (laughs) All I can say is yes, you got it. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Thank you very much again for coming on, Greg. And fall protection is a very important topic for a lot of safety professionals out there. And I hope our conversation today offers them and workers guidance on safe anchorage when working at heights. So thank you again.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Join us at Safety Focus, February 21st through the 25th, 2022 in Phoenix, Arizona, and online February 21st through March 4th. Register today at safetyfocus.assp.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at assp.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.